2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, the thought that I have not been able to get out of my mind, along with many other wonderful thoughts, is that the number of people in this room is just about the number of people who stepped into eternity on September 11. And it could happen here. And I wonder if we're ready. I wonder if we're ready. So, Lord, I plead with you to come. Oh, so much truth has been sung already. We could just go home happy. Lord, we want to sing some more, and there's a word we need to hear. So come and help me deliver that word And help us to sing so that everybody in this room would be ready. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On the banner behind me, you read, Thankful for the love of God. Why? And you might think, that is so obvious. What's the point? It's plain why. To be loved is a wonderful thing. You don't need any explanation, do you? And my answer is, it's not obvious why we should be thankful for the love of God. It's not. When you're loved, you're given something that is good for you, usually at significant cost, To another. And the better it is for you, the more love and the more cost to the lover, the more love you feel. But it isn't obvious what that gift is. It isn't obvious what the love of God gives us, leads us into that is good for us. Let me get at it by comparing the issue of forgiveness. Why should you care about being forgiven? That's not obvious either. Take a husband who has wronged a wife, perhaps even abused her, or just spoken cruelly. 
And he wants forgiveness. And he asks for it. Is that a good thing? Maybe. The question is, why does he want forgiveness? Is it because his conscience is killing him and he's losing sleep at night? Is it because he's getting an ulcer because of the tension in the air? Is it because he's starting to be afraid maybe even for his life because she is so angry at him, he's not sure he wants to go to sleep next to her? Are those the reasons why he might want forgiveness? If so, I say there's no virtue in this. It's not obvious why you might want to be forgiven. Of course, another alternative would be he misses his wife. There's such an alienation. There's such a distance between them. They can scarcely talk with each other. He wants her back. He loves her. He he misses her. She doesn't talk the way she used to talk. She doesn't touch the way she used to touch. Is that good? That's real good. That's real good. You see, it's not obvious to say, I want you to forgive me, God. I want you to love me. Maybe that's good and maybe it's not. So I asked that question. I asked Chuck, put that on the front of the bulletin, hang it up. Thankful for the love of God. But why? What's your answer? Why do you want God to love you this morning? It might be a good answer and it might be a bad answer. Why do you want God to forgive you this morning? It might be a good answer and it might be a bad answer. And that's what I want to take a few minutes to talk about with you. If you have your Bible open, I'm going to get to that text that David read, but I want you to go to another one with me if you want to. John 11, verses 1 to 6. If you just want to listen rather than read along, that's fine too. My aim this morning is that you will see what the good is that God's love gives you and that you will want this good more than you want anything in the world and that you will receive it this morning as a gift. That's my goal. This is John 11. I have used this text now in about five settings in the last couple of months because no other text has gripped me like this in driving home this Central point. Now a certain man was sick. John 11, 1. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. And wiped his feet with her hair. So this is clearly a picture of of sweetness and love. Mary loved Jesus. And Jesus loved Mary. Mark that word love. It will show up several more times. It was this woman whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love, there it is, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So that the son of God may be glorified in it. So now you have two profound realities on the table. Love and glory. The love of Christ and the glory of Christ. And my question is, how do they relate to each other? Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... Verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and let him die. Notice three things. One, Jesus chose to let Lazarus die. Two, he was motivated in this by his zeal for the glory of God to be manifest. Verse 4. Third, this motivation is love. Do you see the word so or therefore at the beginning of verse 6? Do you see what it's preceded by and followed by? It's preceded by Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved the dying man, Lazarus. Therefore, he did not go heal him, but stayed two days longer where he was and saw to it that he died. Now, what on earth could possibly turn that into love? Verse 4. This is not going to end in death. This is all about the glory of God. That the Son of God may be glorified in Him. So here's my definition of the love of God based on this text. God's love is His doing whatever needs to be done at whatever cost. So that we will see and be satisfied with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The love of God is His doing whatever needs to be done. At whatever cost to Himself or to us. So that we will see And be satisfied by the love of God in Christ forever and ever. Let me confirm this with John 17, 24. Here's Jesus praying for us. And he loves us in this prayer. Oh, how he loves us in this prayer. John 17, 24. Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory. If Jesus loves you and prays for you, do you know what He finally asks for you? That you may see Him. The ultimate answer to the prayer of love is, show them my glory, Father. Show them my glory. And they will have arrived at Ultimate satisfaction. And now the text that David read. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 7 to 9. To keep me, Paul says, to keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. To keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that he would, that it would leave me. And he said to me, my grace, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness, to which Paul responds, Most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Notice three things again. Love did not take away the thorn. Just like he didn't heal Lazarus. Secondly, love had something more more important and more satisfying to give. Third, the all-sufficient, all-satisfying grace and power of Christ is more important to give. So what does love do when we cry out, help me, love me, forgive me? God says, I will engage all my Might and the life of my son to give you what you need most. Me! A a fellowship with me, a sight of me, an enjoyment of me. I said this in Orlando Friday night to a group called the Ivy Jungle. And a man came up to me afterwards and he said, no, wait a minute. He opened his Bible to John 3.16. He said, this is the verse I know This is a verse I love. How does what you just said fit into this verse? For God so loved, loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I said, 
it fits like this. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why do you want to be loved by God? Yes, not to perish. Yes, not to go to hell. Yes, not to have a guilty conscience anymore. Yes, to have the marriage put back together. But if that's all you want, you don't know Him. You don't know Him. It's for life. And what is life? It is to know Him and His Son. It's to fellowship with Him. It's to behold Him. It's to be satisfied with Him. It's to enjoy Him until Christ becomes our treasure. We don't know what it is to be loved by God. Why are you thankful for the love of God today? I hope before we're done... God will have worked in your heart so that you see enough of God the Father and enough of God the Son, Jesus Christ, so that you will know and feel that it is not finally for the relief of your conscience. It is not finally for escape from hell. It is not finally for health in our bodies or reconciliation among our family members. It is finally to bring you home to God where you can see Him and enjoy Him forever and ever and ever. And I want to know, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want to be loved by God for God? Do you want to be loved by God for God or do you only want to be loved by God because it feels good that he seems to make much of you? Have you taken the American definition of love, being made much of, and so twisted God to fit that definition? Now the only way you would feel loved by God is if he makes much of you. When in fact, the love of God is so working as to change you so that you enjoy making much of Him forever and ever and ever. And that's the end of your quest. There isn't anything beyond it. I do believe that is in every heart in this room. And we are all fallen and we are all sinners. And I know that every person in this room has a distorted desire for God. And it's on the way to being purified. And it's being tricked. You're being tricked, many of you, into thinking that the satisfying thing in life is to be made much of. If I could just get some people to clap for me, to like me, To approve me, to give me a raise, or to give me an advancement. If I could just get someone to pay attention to me, I would be satisfied. You wouldn't. I promise you, in the name of Jesus Christ Almighty, you wouldn't. You will be satisfied when you forget yourself and are swallowed up in Jesus Christ. And He becomes your treasure. 
And He becomes your delight. And He becomes what you cherish and what you value. And you spend the rest of your eternity growing in your capacity to see and savor, to know and delight in Him forever and ever. And it will get better and better and better. So let me do this for just a moment. If that's true, then perhaps I need to include in this message, just briefly, a few pointers for your spirit's eyes, a few pointers for your eyes toward this all-satisfying Christ. If that's what you're made for, which you are, everybody, believer or unbeliever in this room, was made to behold Him You know, there are clues in your life. Everybody in this room right now has clues in your life that you were not made to be made much of. You were made to make much of God. Here's clue number one. You were made to make much of God because the pleasures you get right now from being made much of are dirty. They feel dirty to you. You know they do. You know that when you go to bed at night, having taken great delight in others praising you and approving you and saying nice things, you feel dirty. You know you do. It isn't to be that way. You're to be full in giving that. You're not to be craving that. You know that. It's written on your heart not to crave that, but to go get it from God. And there's another, there's another clue as well. Nobody in this room would go to the Grand Canyon to increase your sense of self-esteem. Nobody stands on the edge of the Alps or the Rockies or the Grand Canyon in order to go there to feel bitter about ourselves. You know why you go there? Because you were written to be satisfied with splendor, not self. You were Created and a law written on your heart to be infinitely, eternally, fully, joyfully satisfied in a grand splendor, not a great self. I plead with you, lay it down. Lay down your quest for the applause of men, the approval of men, and begin to get on a quest for the one thing that will satisfy your soul, the splendor of Jesus Christ and all that God is for you in Him. I just plead with you for your own soul's infinite happiness that you will stop Pursuing it in the wrong place. Now let me point you to the right place for just a moment. A few glimpses of Jesus. Oh, how we need to devote ourselves to seeing Him. Glimpse number one. We love persons who combine in themselves very strange and seeming opposites, do we not? And he is called a lion and a lamb. We love to see mercy and might come together. We sing it, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Early in the morning our songs arise to thee, holy, 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 merciful and mighty. And that's what makes him so attractive. Mercy and might coming together. 
in one person in Jesus. Meekness and courage, humility and sovereignty, tenderness and toughness, all authoritative, self-sacrificing, deserving of all honor and receiving all shame for you. And then there's another one. I use an illustration to give it to you. This other balance. I grew up in a home where my dad was on the road three-fourths of the time. I, my mother did most of my rearing. And I, she was 5'2", five, 5 feet 2 inches tall. And I passed her at about age 13 and got to where I am now, 5'9", and uh, towered over her as a 14-year-old and was a pretty brash kid, mouthy and disrespectful too often. My mother's with Jesus now, and we made it right real good many times as I wised up. My dad told me one time that she called him more than once in tears about me. I didn't know this. Saying, what am I supposed to do? He's bigger than I am. He's mouthy. I need you here. And my dad said to her, be firm and be sweet. Be firm and be sweet. And she was. My mother slapped me in the face, though she had to reach, if I mouthed off at her. She one time washed my mouth out with soap because I said, shut up to somebody. Not even her. (laughs) Took me home from church one night because I'd skipped training union, which was a Sunday evening Sunday school at our church and used a belt on my behind. My mother was no pushover at 5'2". And she served me like a slave in sweetness and humility when daddy was gone. Taught me everything I know about everything practical. You know why I think I believe in God today? Because my mother was a good God to me. God will smack me. He will whip me. And he will serve me. And he will kiss me. And he will rub my back at night. And he will understand when I couldn't stand up in front of a group and say anything because I was so nervous. My God understands me. And my God disciplines me. And you know why I believe that today? Yeah, it's in the Bible. But a lot of people see it in the Bible and they hate it. I had a mom who got it together. And that's what I'm saying. If you didn't have that mom or you didn't have that dad, you've got that Jesus And I want you to look at him. He is infinitely worthy. He pulls things together that other people can't get together. And when you steadily look at him in the Bible, I just plead with you, open your Bibles and study the Gospels until you see him for who he is. That's glimpse number one. Here's a second glimpse. He is an indestructibly happy Savior. Isn't it great to hear him say things like, I have spoken these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. 
His joy in us. And then there's that great parable at the end in Matthew 25 where we're gathered before him and the sheep and the goats are being separated and the sheep draw near to him and he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were found faithful in little, you will be found faithful in much. Enter into the joy of your master. You need a picture of heaven with Jesus? Enter into the joy of your master. We have an invincibly triumphant Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from Him to yourself. Don't want praise for you. Give praise to Him. Know Him. He'll satisfy you. Here's a third glimpse. Power and authority. Oh, how we admire power. Oh, how we admire Shack attacks, unmovable under the backboard. <laughs> How we love to watch those bloopers, those planes that have about ten times more thrust than they are heavy, and they go straight up, accelerating. How I read, I couldn't believe this when I saw it in the news magazine, a 127-pound Romanian weightlifter snatched 350 pounds. I just stood in awe of that. Can you imagine standing in awe of something so stupid (laughs) and little and small? That's the way I'm wired. And you are too. We stand in awe of power. My wife and I and two of our sons were in Pensacola, Florida when Hurricane Aaron came over. First hurricane I've ever been in. Last one I hope I'll ever be in. Right over our heads. The eye came right over our heads. And we were hiding in a house. And it devastated the whole neighborhood. Chimneys came down. Oaks this big around were just right on their side. We didn't know whether the house would fly off or not. And my wife wrote a poem about it. I'll read it to you. God strode the beach. Our legs and faces could not bear the piercing, blasting sand. God stepped ashore, palms waved, scattering branches in his path. God strode inland, magnolias, pines, and oaks who'd stretched 100 years toward God fell to the ground before him. God stood and breathed while we in the dark, closed closet feared to face his glory. Yes, we did, but oh, how I loved it. I loved it. And you know that's written on your heart too. You go to see these crazy, wild, hard, cinematic productions of fearful demonstrations. You do the rerun on September 11. Because even horrific power does something to us in here. Puts us on the brink of eternity. Wakes us up to reality. And even in all of its horrific power, we know we want power. We want to see it. We want to behold it. And Jesus has all power. Jesus, having died and been raised, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And we love that about him. Glimpse number four. He is infinitely wise and infinitely knowledgeable. 
Oh, how we love people who know a lot. We watch these TV programs with all their questions and answers, and we stand in awe of those who know a thousand things that we don't know. We give admiration to scholars and pay them lots of money and clothe them with colorful garments and put them in charge of universities and stand in awe that they can write big, complicated books. We love people who know lots. Let me tell you what Jesus knows. It's not enough to say he knows everything. He knows everything there is to know. Every scholar who's ever known anything, Jesus knows that. It's a first grade reader to him, including physics. But you know what the Bible says? No one knows the Son but the Father. And no one knows the Father but the Son. You ever pondered that? What is that? No one knows the Father but the Son. To know everything there is to know as a finite creation is big. Big. I did marvel, did you not, that those astronomers could tell us it would be between four and six this morning? When the sky would be filled with meters, you get up, raise your hand if you got up to see it. Shame on the rest of you. I got up, walked out in the backyard with my pajamas on. I did put on a coat and put on two different boots. I couldn't find the pair in the dark. And walked out and stood, and I saw 15, just boom, 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 just like that. And then I got cold and, and went back in and watched from the window. It struck me as amazing. You know, this earth really is not flat. Somebody did land on the moon. And these astronomers do seem to know what they're talking about. They predicted this. They got it exactly right. I stand in awe of that kind of knowledge. And that's nothing compared to what Jesus knows. But you know what? If you know everything there is to know about this universe and creation, you know a parochial amount. What's real knowledge is, do you know everything there is to know about the infinite God. Jesus does everything. Well, I've got a long list. I'll pass over the rest of them. Let me draw to a close like this. The love of God for you is the work of God at great cost to give you the gift of Jesus Christ to enjoy forever and all that he is for you in him. It's not mainly about escape from hell, though that's precious beyond words. It's not mainly about a conscience that's clear, though that is precious beyond words. It's not mainly about all the ways he heals your mind and heals your body and heals your relationships. That's precious beyond words. But that's not the main thing. The main thing is 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. To bring us to God. Thankful for the love of God. Why? Because at great cost to Himself, it brings us to God. It brings us to the splendor behind all splendor. 
You think the Alps or the Rockies are something? You think the Grand Canyon is something? You young people, you think your favorite music group is something? These are echoes of splendor. And of course we all know, or maybe we don't, that there's a massive obstacle between us and God. And it's called, it's called sin. And the essence of sin is this. Exchanging the glory of God for His gifts and creation. You're offered God for your fellowship forever and you lay it aside and you take His gifts and say, no thank you, I'm not interested in fellowship with you and enjoying you and being satisfied with you. I want your gifts. Wife, child, The applause of men, health, that's what I want. Justin Taylor, one of our assistants in the Desiring God ministry, was riding on the plane with me back from Philadelphia. And the guy next to him got into a conversation about Christ. And the question Justin put to him that bore right to the heart was would you want to be in heaven if God weren't there blew the guy away said never even thought about that question so I'm closing by asking you would you want to be in heaven if Jesus weren't there you could have all the health you wanted You could have all the relationships with friends you wanted. You could have a clean conscience. You could have your favorite toys and recreation. Just know Jesus. Would you want to be there? A woman came forward in our church two weeks ago with tears just running down her face. She quoted me that question that I had asked, and she said, Yeah, I would. I would, and I'm scared of myself. She was honest. And we need to be honest. God's love is his doing everything it takes, even the death of his son, in order to so work in you that you would stop feeling loved by being made much of and start feeling loved by the enjoyment of making much of him forever in all that you do. So, this is good news, and I pray that you will see it. He came to his own, and his own received him not, John says, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. Whom have we in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that we desire besides thee. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart. And you are our portion forever. You are our inheritance forever. And that's what I long for him to do in you, for you this morning.